Years and years ago, when I was sitting in my World Cultures 8th grade class, there was a debate going on between a young lady in the front row and my teacher, uh, both of whom will remain anonymous. Uh, but for the sake of my story, they were debating about the direction that the Nile River would flow. And my teacher was very much adamant about trying to convince this young woman that the Nile River flowed north, to which the young lady professed that that was impossible. And as they kind of bickered back and forth, and it was kind of humorous at the time, eventually the teacher explained to her that the reason for why it flowed north was because of mountains and because of hilltops. Still, she refused to believe it, to which he finally said, why can't the Nile River run north? And she replied, because of gravity. Now, obviously, this answer was incorrect, and her reasoning was incorrect, but she was so convinced that she was in the right, because she understood maps to be subject to gravity, apparently, and north meant up and south meant down. <laughs> and although we did clear it up for her that gravity does not work uh, that way on a map when you're viewing it, but rather it works from up and down uh, with mountain ranges, she still had a hard time accepting it at first. She had a hard time believing that that could even be possible, even at the age of 13 or 14 or whatever we were. But my point is, is that changing someone's mind when it's made up, when it's totally convinced that it's in the right, can be a daunting thing to do with another person. Because that other person may be convinced without a shadow of a doubt that they have all the facts, that they have all the evidence, that they have all the information, and there's nothing you can do or say or present to them that's going to change their mind. Or is there? That's the topic of my episode today here on The Writer's Lens, where I'm talking narrative wars and I'm talking why is it so hard to change other people's minds. So yeah, so that story I just shared with you guys is a true story. Uh, I just don't have the names out there for anonymity's sake, but it was definitely lively. It was a fun discussion slash argument. And to anyone who was in my Mercer Junior High World Cultures class, if you're listening and you remember that conversation, kudos to you because that was a, that was a fun day. And I will never forget that. It was uh, uh, one of those laugh out loud moments as a kid where everybody walked away from it a little bit smarter and a little bit more humbled by the situation. So, uh, And by no means am I trying to belittle the young woman who believed that gravity had anything to do with the uh, Nile River flowing, uh, flowing south or north. Uh, so all is well. Everyone, everyone grew beyond that moment. But to the point that I'm trying to make with this episode is that even in the face of overwhelming evidence, sometimes people have a very difficult time having their minds changed on something. And as much as we like to believe that we're open and we're free thinkers and that we're totally, you know, like a clean slate of new ideas coming our way and that we can process and filter and, and we can always analyze whatever is best for us, we're actually not as good at it, at it as we would tend to believe we are, which is also a blind spot for, for people that we might believe that we're excellent at making the best decisions, when in fact we're not really good at making really good decisions. And I'll get into that a little bit in this episode, but I want to posit this, this episode of The Narrative Wars uh, 
around a, an article that was brought to my attention about a month or so ago. And it was written a few years back by a woman by the name of Elizabeth Colbert. And she writes for The New Yorker. She's written tons of articles. But there was one in particular that I stumbled upon that I thought was very interesting. It was actually sent to me by a family member. So so thanks, George, for sending that over. I'm going to be talking about it. But in this article, it's literally about why facts don't change our minds. And she goes into great detail about uh, several different things. But she has this really interesting uh, paragraph in here about a study that was conducted at Yale where graduate students, and I'm going to quote from the, from the article, where graduate students were asked to rate their understanding of everyday devices, which would have included toilets, zippers, cylinder locks, things like that. They were then asked to write detailed step-by-step explanations of how the devices work and to rate their understanding again. Apparently, the effort revealed to the students their own ignorance because their self-assessments dropped. And in parentheses, it says, toilets, it turns out, are more complicated than they appear. Now, two individuals uh, by the name of Sloman and Fernbach, who were conducting this experiment and were uh, sort of gathering the data and looking at the results, saw this effect as as what they coined as the illusion of explanatory depth. And what that means is, is that as people are given things that do tasks for them, that are able to do things that don't require mastery of the internal workings of that specific item or device, uh, but they can use them. So a great example of this is I drive my car every day, but I have no idea how everything works inside my car. Uh, I know there's pistons firing. I know there's gas being burned uh, or, or being used. I know that my tires are turning. Uh, there's fumes being expelled. I know all of these things are very real and happening in my car every day. But if I were to be asked to take it apart and put it back together again, I would fail miserably because I, I don't know all those things. I'm not a mechanic. I didn't go to, you know, uh, school for it. I don't, I don't have a, uh, you know, any kind of certification to do it, but I know how to drive one. And in many ways, as Sloman and Fernbach have observed through these graduate students, uh, people tend to think that they have mastery over things, even though they really don't. And as they called it, the illusion of explanatory depth, which I think is a really cool way of saying it, some big 50 cent words in there put together, uh, what allows this belief to actually persist, they found, is other people. Because if other people can put these things together, then I have the right to use them, and I have the privilege of using them. And it's not so much that these other people are trying to sabotage me, necessarily. They're not trying to necessarily make me into this dolt who's very ignorant and just uses things for his own benefit and never wants to give credit back to the creator. But rather, it's this kind of divide and conquer of uh, what we would call cognitive labor. Uh, labor. Uh, let me say that again. It's the divide, uh, the division of cognitive labor. So... In order to live a more harmonious life, to live more peacefully, Sloman and Fernbach are saying that people will develop things, they'll find a niche, they'll find uh, something that they can engineer or make, and they'll provide it to the group, and the group will take advantage of it, and they'll see value in it, and therefore there's value in the engineer, there's value in the mechanic or the creator of this particular technology, and it allows everyone to, to move about their lives and do things better, and uh, you know it gives the, the person who made it a sense of worth, and uh, but but this also makes the person who made it 
the ultimate authority. Like they're the most credible person to use it. Well, over time, of course, as other people are using these things over and over again, it makes them feel as though that they are the masters of it, that they have complete mastery over what it is that they're using. Now, obviously, this is you know not to be dumbed down to the point of like a spoon, for instance. Okay, so whoever developed the first spoon and made it you know out of silver or whatever, like I could potentially make myself a spoon out of something myself, right? Like I could make chopsticks, I could make a fork, right? If I really wanted to go whittle something out of wood or, or cut it down, perhaps I would learn how to do it. I could make a fork or a spoon. So we're obviously talking about things that are a little more complex than simple tools like a shovel, okay, or a rake, right? These are these are complex devices that people have put together that have taken time and, and tons of energy to learn how to put together so that they work at 100% efficiency, right? Okay, so that's what we're doing. Now, the ramifications other than having this illusion of explanatory depth is that by making these new things, we're creating new realms of ignorance for ourselves. And the thing that the New Yorker article by uh, Ms. Colbert tried to sort of unpack and, and go deeper into detail with is that by opening up these new realms of ignorance, we are also creating sort of a bleeding effect where our ignorance will now flow into so many other areas of our life, say politics or cultural issues, societal issues, relationship advice, we will begin to prop ourselves up in such a way that we will look at complex things. And because we can drive a car, because we can manage spreadsheets and computers and we can use them, even though we have no idea how the microprocessors are actually working, <laughs> uh, or we use a, an ID badge to get in at work, or we're, we're taking the elevator up and down 30 flights of, you know, 30 uh, stories uh, of a building, that we have become sort of a, uh, you know, I don't want to say self-righteous is the right word, but maybe that's what it is. Uh, we've built ourselves up to think that we have control over so many things that make us uh, or make our lives so much better and so much easier. And therefore, we are allowed to project our opinions, our beliefs, our thoughts into these highly complex areas of social discourse and believe that we are somehow the authorities on them as well. Now, granted, this article was written in 2017, so obviously a lot of this had to do with the recent presidential election, had a lot to do uh, with uh, a lot of new policies that were being put through by the new administration. So you can read it at your leisure and make your decisions about how you feel about it either way. The point is, from a narrative war perspective, so getting back to the narrative wars uh, here that I that I want to get into, what does this mean as a storyteller, you know, what does this mean for, for someone like myself who's an idea person? Well, from a storytelling perspective, this to me is the power of a great story, is that it can present a new idea to appeal to a wide audience and create or change or even reinforce already established ideas or ideals in a culture or in a society. And it does this from by by way of showing it over and over and over again. So, for instance, if we have films that portray bravery as as being something about self-sacrifice, you know, putting yourself in in uh, in the way of a hazard or a villainous uh, onslaught, uh, 
and you're willing to put yourself out in front of it to save your friends, to save your family, this type of virtue, if it is portrayed over and over and over again, can make people believe that, yes, this is indeed what it means to be brave. Because storytelling is a is a medium where we don't necessarily turn our brains off, but we're looking to be entertained in some way. And at the same time, we're being educated, right? Like, even though we're being entertained, and I know many people turn their brains off when they watch movies or, you know, if they're reading books, perhaps, that are, that are fictional in content, we're just trying to be strung along by something, something that helps us to escape from daily life. And a really good fiction will do that, a really good film will do that, or, or play, or, or some expressionist art. But if a story is reinforcing ideas, or pushing new ideas out there constantly, it can really make us believe in our minds that this is the way things are supposed to be. That this truly is how we're supposed to live our lives that men are supposed to do this, or women are supposed to do that, or that children have a place to do this. Uh, you know, going beyond virtues like bravery and courage and self-sacrifice and uh, you know, unconditional love, going beyond just these kinds of ethics, but rather even uh, roles, uh, gender roles, you know, things, things like this. These can also be reinforced in story. So... To me, this is, this is a really, really interesting aspect of being a storyteller because even though I may write fiction and even though I may do some cultural commentary, even though I may do this podcast, because of the fact that I'm a writer, I'm always going to be engaged in narratives. I'm always going to be engaged in, in sort of cultural commentary, uh, things going on in society. That's really what a writer does and if a writer does it well, his audience will recognize that uh, because of his ability to tell the truth, because of his ability to tell the truth of what is happening around him. The really interesting thing to me is when a band of writers get together and decide this is the agenda. This is what we're going to push. This is what we're going to talk about and make this become the new norm. We're going to, going to push this agenda over and over again in our stories so that people begin to accept it as being the norm. Because again, film and books and entertainment, we always view these as being potentially safer spaces for ideas to flow. And can almost catch us off guard, really. Uh, you know, as a as someone who sees the world with a biblical worldview, uh, I often talk about this with some of my creative friends, is that sometimes thinking that the entertainment industry is much better at discipling people than the church is, uh, 100% I believe that. I mean, when was the last time you saw a really good Christian-themed movie? Now, I could think of a lot of themes that are, are embedded within the Christian narrative that I see coming out in films that aren't overtly Christian, right? Uh, themes of redemption and renewal and restoration and courage and, and sacrifice and, and, and things like that. But in terms of like a overtly Christian film, when was the last time I saw a really good one? And I know that if you're listening to this, you know, write me in and tell me one that you think is great. But but when is it that these have been really successful in the mainstream? Well, they're they're never really going to be successful in the mainstream because you know we live in a marketplace of ideas and many different things that are popular and not popular. And Christianity is not always super popular in the mainstream, but 
to the point these ideas, as they get pushed, as these ideas get uh, filtered together over many different mediums, people can begin to believe that, hey, you know, this is normative, this is acceptable, this is precisely what it is. Their mind frame and their mindset can change because of what they're viewing. Now, getting back to this article from The New Yorker, uh, she kind of goes into a lot of different things about how uh, you know, facts and, and data uh, presentation just isn't enough for people to change their minds. And again, this is one of the incredible powers behind a really good story is I could have the best data in the world. I could have a spreadsheet that, that tells exactly why there's certain kinds of crimes committed by a certain type of group during a certain month of the year. And it could be 100% accurate all the time. Like, this is going to happen with this sort of income, this sort of class warfare, this sort of group or whatever it may be. This is the percentage of people who commit these crimes. I could be 100% accurate and share it in the most mundane way possible by just saying, hey, here's the facts and have someone read it. Do you really think people will take that as seriously unless it's seen in a story format? Let's say we, we have a story. We, let's say we have multiple films that are made talking about crimin, you know, sort of criminals and they're committing crimes. Am I going to be more inclined to believe the film that presents criminals in one way and it's entertaining and it seems interesting and it's possibly believable versus just a spreadsheet of just information and percentages? Like which to me is going to be more interesting and more likely to influence me. Well, it's going to be the obviously the production value of the story, if the story is really good, versus a very boring spreadsheet over here that may have the facts, but but yeah, okay, like that doesn't really speak to my soul. That doesn't really communicate to me anything that, that seems to be jarring. Like I need a story. I need to be able to relate to those numbers. I need to be able to feel like, what is happening is is real, it's tangible, and there are faces to be put with those numbers. And that's I, I think that's one of the things, too, that this article, uh, and I have to go back and read the whole thing, doesn't completely allude to. But through this study that these guys were doing with these, with these graduate students, and sort of this illusion of explanatory depth, and this illusion that we're under where we believe that we're experts in certain things because other people have done it, uh, Changing someone's mind from being an expert to being someone who doesn't really know as much as they thought they did, storytelling can do that all the time. I mean, think of a really good documentary. Uh, you know, my wife and I saw the documentary Blackfish years ago about SeaWorld and sort of the undercover, uh, behind-the-scenes story of, of the whales there and how they were mistreated and how they nearly killed all these different divers and entertainers that, that would jump into the pool with them, and they had no prior training at all whatsoever with these whales, it completely changed my perspective on that theme park. It changed everything about the way I thought about SeaWorld, all because it was pieced together as a story. Now, granted, if I could read an article about it, I could read a book on it even too. I mean, a, a, probably a book in long format would, would have a really profound impact on me as well. But... If I had just read the story bullet point, right, I could read it, process it, and go, wow, that's, you know, sounds terrible, and then go on with my day. But when it's presented to me as though there's a protagonist, there's an antagonist, 
There's kind of this greedy organization trying to cover things up. There seems to be an injustice that has been made or has been committed. And now me as the viewer, as the audience, can see that through the lens of this director. It, it stirs something in me. It stirs something in anyone who watches it. It makes you think, well, you know what? This is not all it's cracked up to be. And it might even call people to action. It might even you know, convince someone that, hey, I should get off my butt and go do something about this. So changing people's minds can happen in the space of a story. It can, and it, and it happens probably almost every day. And you know, you can look at the news cycle, for instance. I mean, news anchors have to present stories. Like they always say, this, you know, breaking news, the story at eight, you know, the story at nine, the story at 10. It's never the evidence at eight, right? <laughs> like you never hear that. Like that's not the line that's used in mainstream media or even local news. We, like they don't just say data reporting at 10, okay? Like it's always more details or story to follow at 11, all right, there's, they're, they're always going to piece together events because as human beings, that's how, we, that's how we relate and that's how we hear things. That's how we can plug ourselves into the situation and it now becomes more tangible and more real for us. And that's really how we end up changing people's minds. You know, I, I was having a conversation uh, with a good friend of mine, Willie Scott, who's actually been on the podcast a few times and... and Willie and I always have some really good banter and back and forth, and we always joke how we're kind of like, you know, brothers from another mother or something. But Willie made this comment to me once about how uh, he said, you know, there's this spirit of sort of unintentional but intentional, uh, maybe I should back up on that. There's this spirit of racism in America where every year, it seems, a movie from Hollywood or a documentary comes out going back to the days of slavery. And, you know, for the record, you know, Willie's African-American, I'm Caucasian, uh, or if you prefer, black and white. And in today's climate, you would think this is a very uncomfortable conversation for two people of different colors or ethnic backgrounds to have. But, but Willie and I, thankfully, we have a good friendship, good relationship, so we can talk about this pretty openly. But Willie made this comment to me once about how he thinks that, you know, if I go back in time and I look at just about every year, Hollywood, uh, television, maybe even books, nearly every single year for many years, something new comes out of entertainment or media detailing America's rather tattered and uh, sort of ugly past of slavery and the trials and tribulations of those who had to rise above it. And this is really interesting to me specifically because, because what is the point of that? And this is a really open-ended question in, in some sense, and I have my own opinions on it, which I, you know, I'll share here. But, but the question to me is, how are we supposed to remember this? Are we supposed to remember it with shame? Uh, you know, are the stories or the narratives that are being told about slavery and segregation in this country, are they, are they brought up to shame us? Or are we supposed to remember it as something to showcase how far we've come, right? Like this was horrible, but this was a great triumph. You know, the Civil Rights Act of the 60s, uh, the desegregation, uh, the elimination of the Jim Crow laws, uh, the Civil War, which which began the, the abolishment of slavery across the colonies, across the states, right? How are we meant to remember our past, right? 
how are these stories being presented to us? Are they being presented to us in a sense of, you know, to guilt us, to guilt specifically maybe whites, even blacks who had slaves? Uh, are we supposed to feel guilty and shamed about it whenever this is brought up? Or are we going from the perspective of, wow, how courageous, how impressive was that, that we were able to move past this? There was a horrible injustice done back in those days with slavery in this country. But man, look at the strides we've made. Look at how far we've come. And again, I know people could be listening to this and say, I don't think we've come very far at all, Josh. And I would say, well, wait a second. <laughs> yes, we have. Okay, absolutely we have. Now, there may be certain pockets of the, you know, the country where there's, there's definitely racism, where there's definitely... Uh, ignorance and there's there's bigotry okay i'm not naive to that reality okay i'm not naive to that whatsoever but in terms of certain laws we have in place now uh, i don't think it's necessarily something that has been brewing under us so much as it's been constantly fed to us that this is how we're supposed to feel that through constantly bringing up this spirit of of sort of discourse and the racial divide in this country I think it's fed constantly. And yes, I could throw all the blame on the media. And yes, I could throw all the blame on Hollywood. But I, I don't want to because, again, it's it's something that individuals have to decide upon. You as a listener have to decide upon that. Me as, as someone who creates content and writes, I have to decide upon, well, is it really a problem or is it not really a problem? And since this is such a big cultural hot button nowadays, how are we going to address it? Right? How are we going to address it? And there's all kinds of ways that people want to address uh, topics of racism in this country. So again, why is it so hard to change people's minds? A lot of it has to do with presentation. A lot of it has to do with the kind of delivery that we that we are giving to another party. And honestly, a lot of it has to do with just the other person. Right? Like we can try our darndest to witness to somebody, to evangelize a message, to share what we know to be as accurate as possible. But if the other person is unwilling, if the other person doesn't want to look like a fool, if the other person realizes that where they are at in life is conflicted by this new information, will they actually change, you know, turn a 180 and change their belief structure? You know, you know, how many times, you know, how many times in your life have you seen an argument or a debate have one party suddenly look at the other and go, you know what? You're totally right. I was totally wrong. And I'm going to go home and think about it. <laughs> I'm going to go home and think about how much, how wrong I was. <laughs> and you were so right. Well, no, you're not going to see that very often. But what you might see is a person who observes the debate, maybe change their minds in private. They might consider the new data. They might think a little bit more uh, critically about what they've heard and decide uh, in private. And that's why, again, I come back to the storytelling element is that a book by itself is not much. But when put in the hands of one person or 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000, 10,000, you get the idea. When so many individuals are given a book and given a powerful story that communicates a narrative that can get reinforced over and over and over again, it can shape those individuals where they're at, where they're sitting, if the story is good enough, if it's convincing enough, if it if it pings any kind of real experience of the reader. 
then it can change that person's perspective. It can change their mind. It can disciple them in such a way that, yes, I do think that this is true because I've seen things like this happen or B, uh, I, I've, ex you know, I've experienced it firsthand. And you know what? I'm going to go out and tell people about it. And that's another powerful thing about storytelling as I, as I try to bring this in for a landing. Uh, even though, you, as you can tell, I got tons to go through on this one. Uh, I always promised I'd make these narrative wars shorter episodes. But for this one, I'm sorry. You just got to buckle in for the, for the duration. But, but back to my point. Or these people will go out and actually tell their friends, you got to read this book. you got to hear this story. You've got to... You have to, you know, key in on what this person has said and what and the type of tale that they've told. I want to know what you think. I want to know if you think like I do. I want to know if you hold the views that I hold, right? That is a that is another way that we change people's minds. That's another way that we can shape a person's perspective or their even their worldview, which is a frightening thing as well. Their belief structure, because as it infiltrates the mind and as it begins to you know, information begins to wrestle with information. Ultimately, even if we've made intellectual agreements, there's still a heart component that has to change. And that is going to be for another episode here on The Writer's Lens, where I'm going to talk about the projection of ideas and ethics as it relates to the heart. And I know the heart uh, can sometimes... Uh, you know, almost sound like this very almost grade schoolish uh, sort of description of the way a person believes or behaves, but it encompasses all those things. Our heart, which pumps into every you know, crevice of our bodies and gives us the lifeblood that we have, the heart is is pumping and driving everything that we do. And when that is set on something, it's very easy to tell the mind that this is what we're going to do, even if the mind has a different thing in, in store for, for, the, for the rest of the body. Even though the mind may think, well, you know, this might actually be the better course of action, the heart ultimately can have the final say. So I'm going to leave it at that for another episode. Uh, thanks for checking in and tuning in on this one. Lots of stuff here, just lots and lots of stuff for the narrative wars. Uh, for this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to like it, share it, subscribe to the, to the podcast, uh, you know, tell a friend about, you know, what I'm doing, uh, what we're doing here. Uh, I would love to hear from you guys. You know, do you enjoy this series on the narrative wars? I'm planning on doing a ton of these uh, or, or a lot more of these, but, but I am going to shift gears on my main uh, series that I'm doing right now talking through some analysis of film and books and everything and it's it's going to be awesome i got lots in the hopper for you there so i look forward to that and also dissecting a lot of that stuff with some of my good friends my some of my creative buddies and some other people that i haven't been on the podcast yet i'm very much looking forward to bringing some other voices on here to dialogue because 30 to 40 minutes an episode is a lot to talk by myself uh as hard as that is to believe for some people who know how much i enjoy talking it can be a bit of a of a, of a chore at times if I'm not uh, feeling completely up to it or my voice is, is, is draining at the end of the day. So, so again, I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to let me know what you thought. Share, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. And I will catch up with you guys again soon. This is Josh J.C. Felto for The Writer's Lens.